Well, I would invite you to open your Bibles. We're in the Gospel of uh, Mark this morning, uh, the 14th chapter. Today, we are launching a new worship series. It's called uh, Counting Up to the Cross. Uh, oftentimes, when we're talking about uh, counting, we, we have the countdown to something, 10, 9, 8, you know, to the launch of the service, and, and the kids, they help keep us right on task and yell it out right there at the end. Um, it occurred to me, though, that we're not really counting down to Easter and to resurrection. We're, we're kind of counting up. We are, we are looking ahead. We are looking forward. We, we, yes, we remember back and recount and recall uh, the story of, of Jesus and His crucifixion and His resurrection, but we're really counting up to life everlasting and the freedom that we find in the cross. And so uh, today we launch into a series of, of four messages. This week uh, we'll talk about uh, the Lord's Supper. Next week we'll talk about Jesus' time uh, that He spent in prayer in Gethsemane. And, and then we will talk about Jesus' uh, trial before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate. And those will be three Sundays. And then on Good Friday we'll end this series uh, with uh, talking about Jesus' death and His crucifixion. And then Easter Sunday, we will launch uh, another new series on the invitations of Jesus. And so as we get started this morning, I would invite you to stand with me to honor the authority of, of God's Word. And this is how Mark tells this story. Now, just a bit of background. We're going to start reading in verse 12, but Mark starts... Uh, this last week of Jesus' life, uh, a couple days ahead of the Last Supper, at the beginning of the 14th chapter of Mark, uh, he tells us that uh, people were already, the rulers, the leaders, were already looking for an opportunity to arrest Jesus so that they could kill him. And as Jesus is in Jerusalem, it says uh, while he was in Bethany still, uh, he was at the table, and he was reclining and, and having a meal. And uh, a woman came in and broke an expensive jar of perfume and, and anointed him. And, and some of Jesus' own people were upset that she would waste something so expensive and so extravagant and, and anoint Jesus. And we could have used that money for something so much better than that. And Jesus says, you don't, you don't understand quite yet. And they moved from that episode to where we begin today. Mark 14, verse 12, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, 
Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, even tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Have you ever had one of those meals that was just to die for? You know, exquisite cuisine, uh, flavor beyond what you could ever have imagined. Um, maybe it was at one of those higher-priced steakhouses, you know, the ones that, you know, they, they just know how to treat a piece of beef marinated just perfectly. I'm a, I'm a rare to medium rare kind. I like the pink in the middle. <clears throat> and so, and you know, they, just get, they just get it just right. And they put those mushrooms on top and the asparagus, you know, that decorates the plate. And then, and then there's those garlic mashed potatoes. You know what I'm talking about, and that freshly baked bread. And then, you know, then they trot out this really fancy kind of a dessert, and it's just to die for. I've had some of these meals, and I would, I'd say they were pretty fantastic. Or maybe you're the kind uh, who thinks that the quadruple double fudge brownie cheesecake with raspberry sauce is just to die for. Anyway, my goodness, I'm getting my, John, this better be a good lunch wherever you disappeared to. <laughs> what is it about meals that, that you remember most vividly? Is it the food? Is it the company? Is it the occasion? Uh, You know, some of the best food that I've ever had has been rather impromptu. You know, you catch a fish, maybe it's a Columbia River salmon, and you get that boat to shore, and you carve that thing up, and you put it right on an open flame with a little spice. I mean, that is, that's pretty delicious. Or maybe it's a fresh-baked cookies right out of the oven with a glass of cold milk to dip them in. Or 
Maybe it's the first hamburger grilled in the springtime season. Well, for that matter, you could put any kind of a meat on a stick and put it over a campfire, and I think that qualifies. My goodness, John, where did you go? (laughs) Uh, I think, though, it's not always about the food. I think most of our memorable meals have more to do with the people that we share them with and the occasions that, that we celebrate. We, we tend to mark significant moments in our lives with, with significant meals. Sharing food together is a way that, that binds us together. The, the meal, it, it does, it feeds our bodies. It, the food nourishes us physically. But this, in some ways, I think is, is of secondary importance. Uh, sharing these meals together says something. It, it does something. It changes us. Because after we go away from these meals, you leave as part of a group that has experienced this together, this event, this time, this place, this food, this emotion. You've shared this together. And once you go away from it, you, you'll, you can always say, I was part of that group that shared that meal together. Elise and I were talking this week about some of our more memorable meals. I think we were talking about prom of our senior year of high school. We decided that uh, we weren't going to go to the school festivities for prom. There was a concert in town that we wanted to go to, and, and so I set up our dining room, and we had one of those fondue sets, and so... I cut up all the food, and we, we sat around our dining room table, and, you know, the light was a little low, and there's sparkling of eyes, and, and we cooked every piece of, you know, every bite you have to cook individually. It's a slow way to enjoy a meal, but that time, that place, that conversation, that emotion, that's memorable. Well, then there's the, uh, the breakfast in the park. When when I got to a point in our relationship that I thought, wow, she is pretty special. Uh, and I wanted to give her a promise ring, not quite an engagement ring yet. I had a friend, I, I got this continental breakfast all set up and juice and coffee and got him all of the fixings. And hey, he was quite the guitar player and singer. And, and so I, inst- I set up this table in, in the park and Lisa had no idea about and so I picked her up, and we're driving around, and I'm like, hey, there's a table over there. So we go sit down at the table, and, and my friend, he serves us breakfast and serenades us and sings to us. I mean, that was a meal to remember. Then, the, then there was the engagement celebration. Some of our friends and us, we, we, we were engaged about the same time, and, and we went to, to this fancier place that you know, kind of above our pay grade, um, you know, as 20-year-olds, 19-year-olds at the time. We were kind of young. We, you know, we were, we were way out over our skis on this one. <clears throat> but it was a Chinese place. And so we we're there celebrating with our this other couple, and I don't know much about this food. And on the menu, in the dish that I wanted to order, there was something called a bamboo shoot. I may have told you this before. I didn't know what a bamboo shoot was. So my entree comes out, and there's this reddish-brown thing that looks kind of like a piece of wood. So I, I, that must be a bamboo shoot. So I pick it up, and I bite down into that thing. I'm chewing it up, and I'm like, 
my mouth exploded in flames. <clears throat> and I swallowed that thing, and so then the flame was all the way down, you know, right here. And, and I'm coughing, and I'm sputtering, and I'm, spin, I'm reaching for water. And my, my friend, I, I can take some spicy food. My, my friend cannot take any spicy food at all. And he was very fair-skinned, blonde hair. He says, I want to feel your pain. So he grabs one of those things off my... He chews that thing, and he exploded, literally. I mean, the sweat just... Boom, there it went. And so we made a scene in the restaurant. Lisa will verify that. <clears throat> we were taking water pitchers from other people's tables. And, <laughs> and I'm thinking, we're never, ever, ever going to be allowed back into this place. It was about, it was about the event. It wasn't necessarily about, it was a memorable meal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could go on. There's several in our existence that... Uh, but that ranks right up there as maybe the most memorable one. Uh, none of them, none of these things have anything to do with the food that was served except for that bamboo shoot, which, by the way, it wasn't a bamboo shoot. It was called a scorpion tail. It was a really hot pepper used to spice the food, and they were supposed to take it out of the dish before they served it. Whoops. <clears throat> now, the great Jewish festivals function in a similar way. Uh, when, when Jesus sat down to celebrate the Passover Seder, the Passover Supper with his disciples, it wasn't about a fine dining experience. It was about telling and retelling a story. It was about the occasion that they were gathered to celebrate. Uh, it's like us gathering for Thanksgiving and, and Christmas meals. You know, we try and make it about the food. It's not really about the food. It's about the occasion and telling the story and, and sharing together, sharing this experience as we go through uh, our life journey together. And so, so what really were they celebrating at this Passover? Why was this so important for them? In, in just a few weeks as we approach uh, Easter time, our Jewish friends, that they will gather in their homes uh, to celebrate the Passover Seder. Uh, the, highlight, the highlight of the Passover Seder is uh, the Haggadah. It's the telling of the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt. And each person who shares in this meal envisions themselves as a slave uh, who is going up and out of Egypt. The story begins with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the descent of the Hebrew people down into Egypt as they tried to escape famine in their own land, and they went off in search of food in Egypt, and they found it there. And the, the pharaoh at the time was a Hyksos pharaoh. And in other words, this was a people group who had come from about the same geography as the Hebrew people. And the Hyksos, uh, they, their pharaohs were favorable to the people of Israel, to the Hebrew people. And so they welcomed them with loving and open arms. Yes, you can come here and share in our food, and you can live amongst us, and, and it'll be okay. Over time, though, the Hyksos pharaohs were uh, removed from power, and Egyptian pharaohs took over, and the Egyptian pharaohs didn't like the Hebrew people so much, and so they enslaved the Hebrew people. And we read about this um, in Exodus uh, chapter 1, um, verses 11 to 14, the, the Egyptian pharaohs put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. 
and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and, and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. 400 years, 400 years, the people suffered in slavery, making bricks out of mud and straw to build these store cities for Egypt. And they groaned in their slavery. They cried out in, out of their pain. They, they cried out to God in uh, Exodus chapter 2. God heard their groaning and He remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and He was concerned about them. So God raised up Moses. We know Moses' story. Moses, who was, he was a Hebrew who was born in Egypt. In fact, uh, he was raised in the palace by Pharaoh's own daughter. But as he matured into manhood, uh, he knew that he was a, a, a Hebrew person himself. He, he came across an Egyptian who was beating another Hebrew, and he, he killed that Egyptian. So he was, he was banished from Egypt, and he, he traveled as far as Midian across the desert and became uh, a shepherd. And one day he was out tending the flock in the wilderness, and he came upon this, this bush that was burning, but it wasn't consumed, and, and he was curious, and so he came up to this, this burning bush, and, and God spoke to Moses out of this bush. Moses, I want you to go and lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. I've, I've heard their cry. I'm, I'm concerned about it. I want, I want to do something. I want to rescue them. Now, now you go and, and do something about it. Of course, Moses objected several times, but, but eventually he said, okay, God, I'll go. I'll go. So Moses, he makes that journey back and he marches into Pharaoh's office and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh he looks at him and says, ha, no way. That's a loose translation. Uh, the, the story recounts Moses' persistence. It recounts Pharaoh's hardness of heart over and over again. But it also recounts God's faithfulness and patience and in his overall desire to lead his people uh, out of Egypt. So nine plagues come to get Pharaoh's attention, to get the the Egyptian people's attention, flies and gnats and frogs and hail and boils, but there was no relenting on Pharaoh's part. There was no letting the people go. Instead, Pharaoh just made their working conditions even more harsh. Finally, God instructs Moses. He says, okay, you've got to get ready to leave Egypt, and we've got to do it in a hurry. So I'm, I'm going to send one more plague. One final plague. The angel of death is going to pass over Egypt. And every firstborn child is going to die. So what you need to do is you need to pack up all your stuff. You need to make bread, and you need to make it in a hurry. You don't even have time to let your bread rise. I want you to mix it all together and bake it right away. We call it unleavened bread because you're going to take it and you're going to eat it in a hurry. 
and I want you to take, I want each household to take a lamb, and I want you to slaughter the lamb, and, and I want you to roast it whole, and I want you to eat it quickly as soon as it's ready, because we are going to get out of here in a hurry. But what I want you to do is I want you to take branches of hyssop and I want you to dip it in the blood of the sacrificed lamb and I want you to make the sign on the doorframe. You notice what that looked like? The sign on the doorframe. Because any household that is marked with the blood of this Passover lamb, the angel of death will pass over and the household will be saved. So Moses gathered the people and they did exactly exactly what God had told him to do. Moses even went and he told Pharaoh exactly what was going to happen. God's going to send one more plague. The angel of death is going to pass over Egypt and every firstborn is going to die. And Pharaoh, it says in in Exodus that his heart was hard and he, he didn't respond. The angel of death came, passed through Egypt, and there was great wailing and weeping The Egyptians begged, begged for the Hebrew people to leave in a hurry. Just get out of our presence. We can stand you no longer. So the people left. They were freed. Once they were slaves, now they leave as a free people. This is the story. This is the story that Jesus and his disciples are telling each other, that they're recalling on the night that they get together for this Last Supper. They are gathering to remember God's central saving act of His people. That God, God, as part of the instructions, commanded Moses to make sure that the people commemorated this event every year. Every year on the anniversary of this, you get together and you have this meal You share it, and and you tell the story over and over and over again, because as you do that, you're telling yourself into the story. The Passover Seder, it really doesn't have anything to do at all with a gourmet food experience. Each of the traditional elements uh, gets set out on the the Passover Seder plate that even, even today, and, you know, a couple of the elements, there's a, they put a a little bowl of salt water on the plate. And you take a a piece of onion uh, or a boiled potato and and you dip it in the salt water. And as you eat it and you taste that salty flavor, that's that's symbolic of the tears that were shed by the Israelites while they groaned in slavery. Then, Then there's also a bitter herbs that are part of that. Usually it's horseradish. Wow. And you take a bite of that, and that, you know, that sensation in your mouth that goes up through your nasal cavity, it, it's there to remind you of the bitterness, of the harsh conditions of slavery in Egypt. And there's four cups of wine as part of the Seder meal, and, and each cup of uh, wine, it represents uh, four of promises of God that were made in Exodus. If you want to look it up, it's Exodus 6, uh, verses 6 and 7. But the promises are, I will free you. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will claim you as my own. And I will be your God. And of course, part of that Seder meal includes the matzah bread, the the unleavened bread that's there to remind everybody that we left in a hurry. 
tasting these foods, even, even for a moment, it's a, it's a tangible way of, of remembering and reenacting their, their history, telling each other into the story, entering the story and, and realizing that, that once you were slaves, at one time we were all slaves, but no longer. Now we are God's free people. This is, in fact, a freedom meal that we celebrate. Luke tells us that uh, in, in his, all four Gospels tell us something about the night of Jesus' Last Supper. Luke gives us some detail. He says that Jesus was eager, excited, looking forward to sharing this meal with his disciples. Jesus had, he had chosen this moment. He had chosen to die in conjunction with the Passover. We, we can tell that there's this carefully laid out plan Noted in the instructions to, to go follow a man carrying a, a pitcher of water. Well, women were the, were the ones who usually carried water, so a man carrying a pitcher of water would be easy to spot. And so the disciples are to look for a man carrying a pitcher of water and follow him and talk to the owner of the house that he goes into. It's a carefully laid out narrative here. Jesus felt that he was so excited and eager to share this meal with his disciples, that he needed to make sure it was done in kind of secret because he knew that they were already looking to arrest him, that they were already looking for a way to plot to kill him. And if he had done this in a more public fashion, he might not have been able to share these hours with his disciples and, and, and spill his heart and, and just give them final instructions be, before all this went down. This wasn't just a Passover Seder for Jesus. This was, in fact, his very last meal. Because just in just a few hours, that evening, he would be arrested. That very night, he would be taken, tried before the Sanhedrin. In the early hours of the morning, he'd be taken and he'd be tried before Pilate. Pilate would wash his hands of it. He'd be turned over to the people, and they would beat him. By 9 a.m., he'd be hanging on a cross. Six hours later, he'd be dead, and they would bury him. This was his last, his very last meal. And the disciples did not have a clue at all. They were totally oblivious to what's going on. All, all but one of them, that is. Mark tells us just before the story we read that Judas had left that meal where that woman had broken that perfume and anointed Jesus. And they were, they were told that a few of them were upset by that. I imagine one of them was Judas. He was kind of money-motivated. And maybe that was just the very last straw that Jesus scolded him about being upset about that. But Mark says he went from there immediately to the priests. He said, how much, how much would you give me to sell this guy out? They agreed on a price, and he said, okay, done. The disciples didn't have a clue. And if you notice how Mark lays out this story... So they were at the table, 
reclining, eating. Before, before Jesus says anything else in the Gospel of Mark, these are His words. He says, He announces that one of them is going to betray Him. And one by one, they go around the table questioning themselves, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Perhaps that's a still a relevant question for the followers of Jesus to ask as we approach the table, the communion table, the, the Last Supper, when we share it together. Perhaps that's still a good question for us to ask. Is it, is it I, Lord? Will, will I be the one to deny you, to betray you, to abandon you? Then they eat, and as they do, Jesus, Jesus transforms this Passover meal into uh, the Lord's Supper, something new. The, this, this meal now marks the new covenant that will be sealed with Jesus' blood. Everything that, that Jesus had said, it, it doesn't make complete sense to the disciples. They don't get it yet. But in about a matter of just a few hours, the picture is going to start to become very clear to them as they march through the last hours of Jesus' life and they watch Him die on the cross and His blood is shed. This old meal with a, a new twist has become the defining act of worship for the Christian church. Jesus took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He handed it to them and He said, take this. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my body which is given for you. This is a very interesting statement. As I was reading about the Passover Seder and, and how they still reenact this story, part, one of the steps of the Passover Seder, they, they take that matzah bread and, and they, they snap the bread in half and they lay it back down on the plate. And the symbolism is the picture that when they break the bread and they separate it into two, the picture is how God parted the sea of reeds so that the people of Israel could pass from certain death on one side with the Egyptians coming in, ready to round them up and bring them back to slavery in Egypt. God broke the sea. He parted the sea so that they could move from death on one side to life on the other side. Oh. Jesus broke the bread. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do you see the picture? With Jesus' body breaking, it makes a path through sin that we can move from death on one side, being slaves to sin here. Jesus' body is broken, and we now have access to God. We can go through Jesus to life and freedom on the other side. And he took the cup. And he, he blessed the cup. And he said, this blood, this is my blood. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. It, it seals the covenant. 
It represents forgiveness of our sin. If you remember when, when John first saw Jesus coming to him out in the wilderness, it's, it's John chapter 1, verse 29. John looks and he sees Jesus coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away, what? The sin of the world. Jesus was the ultimate Passover lamb who was sacrificed once for all the sins of the people. The prophet Isaiah even foretold this way back in our Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53, I think it's verse 5, he he said that he would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would be bruised for our iniquities, and by his wounds we would be healed. So as we practice Christian, holy communion, when, when we gather together as the people of God, disciples of Jesus, gathered around this table, there's three things that Jesus commands us to do in the context of His last supper that He shared with His disciples. The first one is to love one another. The, the second one is to serve one another. And the third thing is to remember Him. And all of these things set us free. They liberate us. Passover is a freedom meal. And to this day, the Lord's Supper, the Passover, it remains a meal of liberation. It is still a freedom meal. Jesus says to love one another. Uh, The Last Supper, like I said, is given to us in in all four of the Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they talk about the the function of it. They talk about the taking and blessing and breaking and giving, and so they're focused on those details. Luke colors in a little bit of the picture. John is the one who, who, he doesn't, he kind of just glosses over that they're gathered for a meal. He focuses on the actions of Jesus, and he focuses on, uh, on the story and the words of Jesus. If you're in your Bibles, you can just flip over to, there's two verses I wanted to read. Uh, John chapter 13, as part of the Last Supper, uh, Jesus says uh, to the disciples, a new command I give you, a new command, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, by your love, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You get the point? The new command is to love one another. And if that isn't spell it out in just a, you know, in John chapter 15 in verse 17, this is the entire verse. This is my command, colon, love each other. I think Jesus was pretty serious about this command. It's not just simply a suggestion. This is what we as His people are to do, is to love each other. He's not talking about a warm, fuzzy kind of a love. Because quite frankly, some of us aren't all that lovable in a warm, fuzzy way, right? Some of us, every so often, we have a personality that bristles a little bit, and and when we move towards some people, it's kind of like hugging a porcupine, me included. 
We all have our own personalities. That's not the kind of love that Jesus is talking. He's not talking about a warm, fuzzy, loving kind of a feeling. He's talking about a love that is action, a love that works, a love that shows compassion, a love that seeks to bless other people no matter what, a love that is completely selfless. When we share this meal together, we remember that we remember what Christ has Himself done for us. And as we share this meal together, it's not about the food at all. It's about the occasion. It's about being transported back to that upper room. It's about becoming part of the story ourselves. It's, it's about the people that we share this meal with. Paul talks about this when he writes to the to the church in, in Corinth, uh, he tells the church in Corinth, um, chapter 10, verse 16, um, there it is, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? The word that he uses there, for participation. You've heard it before. We talk about this quite a bit. It's koinonia. We often translate that as fellowship or community. As we come together to celebrate this meal, we are in fellowship. We are sharing together. For, for when you and I eat this meal, we are bound together in, in unity as Jesus' disciples together, fellowshipping with one another. The command that Jesus leaves us is to love one another. Second one is to serve one another. And again, in John's gospel, we get, we get a more full picture of the evening. Jesus is the host at the meal. John barely mentions the meal, but he focuses his camera lens in on the activity of Jesus. The disciples had arrived at the meal. This was a borrowed room, and there was not a servant to wash the disciples' feet as they arrived. It was probably warm, definitely dusty, Footwear was sandals. When you traveled around, your feet get sweaty and dusty. They don't smell so good, and you just feel kind of dirty. And so as you would come to a meal like this, you would, uh, if there was a servant there, your feet would be washed. So you would be, you'd be cleansed. You would be refreshed. Uh, you didn't sit at a table with your feet underneath the table, you sat very close together, kind of reclining, you sitting down with your feet pointing out. And so your feet are close to other people. So clean feet, that's a good thing. Now, when you're in a borrowed room, the, there was a basin and a pitcher of, of water. And if there's not a servant, you could, you could in fact, wash your own feet. But the catch was this. If, if you were the first one to pick up the pitcher of water and start washing your own feet, it was often expected that, hey, you're going to wash other people's feet as well. The disciples didn't want anything 
to do with that. They passed by that and just went and they took their spot at the table. Jesus saw that. He, he took note of that. File that one for a second. Luke, when we read his account of the Last Supper, he tells us that part of their dinner conversation, and the disciples were there talking amongst one another at the table, their conversation centered around which one of them was the greatest of the disciples. Hmm. Jesus wants to Jesus wants them to know that being one of his disciples is about serving other people. So Jesus stands up, he takes the pitcher of water and the basin, and he goes and he, and he kneels down in, in front of his disciples. And he begins washing their feet one by one. Of course, we read that Peter objected. He's, his actions are, are putting it in front of the disciples. It, he's asking them the question by his very action, don't you get it yet? Don't you understand what my ministry has been about? Haven't you listened to my teaching that we are to serve other people? You've been traveling with me for, for three years, and you've heard me say the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. You've watched me live. You've watched me serve other people. You know, freedom True freedom isn't found in, in trying to impress other people. Greatness is, not, greatness is not found in trying to elevate yourself over and above other people, trying to convince them of, of how worthy you are. You know, it's, it is so easy for us to assume a place and a right of privilege, but, but Jesus is trying to show them a better way. Freedom he says, is found when your life becomes about blessing other people, serving, not being served, giving, and not receiving. During this meal, Jesus reiterates to his disciples that the defining mark of somebody who is spiritually mature is that they would know how to love others and they would know how to serve others. Jesus was a servant at this meal, even though he knew that Judas had already betrayed him. Even though he knew that Peter would, in fact, deny him. Even though he knew that all the others at the table would run and scatter and hide because they were afraid that when Jesus need him, needed them most, they would not be around. He still served them. How, how, do, you, how do you deal with people who hurt you. If you're a slave to sin, my observation is that you distance yourself from them. That's just not my observation. It's my own experience too. When you're a slave to sin, you distance yourself from other people. You may retaliate. You may be tempted to belittle them and to condemn them. See, when you're not free, you let what they did to you, grab hold of your life and grip you. It takes control of your thoughts. It eats away at who you are. When you're a slave to sin, this is how you respond to people who 
hurt us. Jesus frees you from this. He liberates you. Jesus has been teaching his entire ministry to live in a different way. It's called loving and it's called serving. Notice how Jesus treats both Judas and Peter and the others. See, when you love and serve, you'll find yourself free. Paul says, Galatians 5.1, that, that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Jesus himself said in John 8, uh, verse 36, If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And as we close out this morning, the third thing that Jesus commands his disciples and us is to remember, to remember him. Sharing the Lord's Supper tells our defining story as Christians. It's central to our worship as followers of Jesus. Eating this meal, it's not an optional part of our faith practice, but a regular part of our spiritual life. This, this, meal, is, this meal is for sinners. This meal is for people who have denied, for people who have betrayed, for people who have abandoned Jesus. It's offered to you, it's offered to me. Through it, we're commanded to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, to forgive us, to set us free, to liberate us from the sin that entangles us and holds us back. Our, our recollection of the events of the night on which Jesus was betrayed takes us deep into the, into the mystery of forgiveness and, and grace. It's a tangible, physical reminder that Jesus himself had a body, and that body had blood pumping through its arteries and veins, that, that he was killed, that he was taken, and, and he was beaten, and, and he was hung on a Roman cross in a very public fashion in the place of sinners so that everyone who believes on his name can be forgiven and can be saved. This meal reminds us that we belong to the family of God and that we're never, ever alone. This meal is also a foretaste of that glorious banquet and the day when Jesus will return. In the Lord's Supper, we are strengthened, we are forgiven, we are healed, we are blessed, we are fed, and we are sent forth in a right that, that sets us apart as God's people in this world. In a way, we're remembering forward. Certainly, we, we look back, we tell a story. And we recount Jesus' life and, and his sacrifice. But we, we are leaning forward into new life. We are remembering forward. The world says that we should eat, drink, and be merry for what? Tomorrow we die. 
The church has a different twist on that. It says we eat and drink for tomorrow. For tomorrow we live. People of God said, Amen.